Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. The Roman army hires a former legionnaire to hunt down a courier and intercept a letter he's carrying from the Apostle Paul. But when this mercenary overtakes the courier, something happens that neither he nor the Empire could have ever predicted. This is the plot of the latest novel from writer Stephen Pressfield, entitled A Man at Arms. Pressfield is the author of numerous works of both fiction, including Gates of Fire and the Tides of War, and nonfiction, including The War of Art and the Warrior Ethos. On today's show, Stephen explains why he decided to return to writing a novel set in the ancient world after a 13-year hiatus from doing so, and why he chose to center around one of Paul's epistles and the threat the Roman Empire perceived in the growing movement of Christianity. We discuss how the protagonist of a man-at-arms named Telamon embodies the archetype of the warrior in a philosophy of dust and strife, and yet has exhausted the archetype and is ready to integrate something else into it, the philosophy of love. Stephen explains how the journey Telamon is on applies to all artists, entrepreneurs, and individuals, and the transition we all must make from the first half of life, in which we're discovering our gifts and honing our skills, to the second half of life, in which we figure out what those gifts and skills are for. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash manatarms. Stephen joins you now via clearcast.io. All right, Stephen Pressfield, welcome back to the show. Hey, Brett, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. So you got a new novel out, A Man at Arms. And what makes this novel unique, it's your first novel set in the ancient world. So we've, you know, I'm sure a lot of our listeners read like Gates of Fire, The Virtues of War. This is your first novel set in the ancient world in over 13 years. So my first question is, why has it been so long since you've written a book set in ancient Rome or ancient Greece? And what was it about this story that made you decide, this is it, I got to write another novel set in the ancient world? Well, it's, it's, uh, I was having a coffee with a friend of mine, like about 13 years ago, whatever it was, another writer. And he was making fun of me or he was saying, how are you going to kill the next person in your book? Are you going home to worry? Is it a spear? Is it a sword? Is it, you know, do you knife them? Whatever it is. And I sort of got, I said to myself, you know, maybe I've been too long in this area and I should get into the modern world a little bit. So I decided, okay, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to shift and, and write stuff that's more contemporary for a while. Cause I didn't, I also didn't want to get sort of typecast as only being in the ancient world, but I missed it, you know, and I missed the, uh, the effects that you can produce when you use kind of, let's say, more noble language that you can that you can do when you're writing in the ancient world. And I wanted to tell the story of this one character, Telamon. It's a recurring character in three of my other books. And I was just, you know, it takes a long time, Brett, to find a story sometimes. You know, you you try and you try and try, you don't you just can't find one. And finally, a couple of years ago, I did find it. And it was great fun to do a book that was only about this one character, a favorite character of mine, Telamon, and also to get back into the ancient world. Well, so how do, I mean, the basic story is that Telamon, he's a former Roman legionnaire. And this is around the time when the early Christian movement was just starting. Right. And he decides to team up. I mean, that's how it ends up, but teaming up with some Christian messengers who were carrying epistles for the Apostle Paul. How did, where did that come from? That's just, it seems out of left field. It's, uh, the, the, the long backstory is my niece got married a couple of years ago and she asked me to be the officiant at the, at the ceremony. Actually, my brother had already secretly married them and I was going to be the public face of this. So I went to the Book of Common Prayer to try to find, put together my own little, you know, traditional type of whatever you wanted to call it. 
a service, whatever. And everything that I fell in love with came out of Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. You know, through we see through a glass darkly and faith, hope, and charity and all of all those wonderful, great quotes. And that just sort of stuck in my mind. And, you know, things percolate. And, you know, as a writer, you're always looking for some hook to hang a story on. And I thought, this is a great thing. This letter, this that it actually was a real letter that had to be delivered and that the Romans were trying to stop it. And they made perfect bad guys for a kind of a, a you know, an action chase story that would have real depth to it, that would really be about things on, on the soul level and not just on the action level. So that's how the story came together, Brett. And I'm curious, how did you go about researching the book? Because writing about... Christianity can be tricky because it's, you know, it's some, it's so part of our culture. If you grew up in the West, like, you know, the story basically. So it's hard to get at it in a different angle. What, but what I liked about reading a man at arms is that oftentimes I felt like I wasn't reading a book about Christianity. I was like reading like a, a work of political fiction where I was able to see how the Romans or even the Jews looked at or viewed this this early movement so you know first like how did you research that and like was that what you're trying to convey you're trying to like look at the christian movement from a different perspective yes i mean i i certainly do not consider this a book about christianity by any means if anything i would say it was a kind of a political thriller or an action story it really is more about the movement of early christianity as seen through the eyes of rome of the empire of Rome and as, as seen as a threat, as something that they have to deal with, which it really was. And rather than until the very end of the story, which I don't want to give anything away, only then does it really get into kind of the spiritual aspects. But I definitely felt like I was telling a, a kind of a political story of a movement that was a threat to an empire and the empire's moves to crush that movement. And can you give us you know, like a, a taste of what that world looked like, the way you describe in your book? Well, one of the things that I thought was really interesting was that early Christianity was a threat, not just to the Roman Empire, but to the Jewish community, to, you know, the, the kingdom of Israel at the time, Judea, because it threatened to split and weaken the Jewish community, under, which was under tremendous oppression from Rome and needed to be as um, united as it possibly could, so that there were a number of elements, bad guys, trying to stop this growing faith. And at that time, the story is set like maybe 20 years after the crucifixion. So it's really about the primary engine of fledgling Christianity at this point was the Apostle Paul, who was sort of the, I don't know, the, the paramount proselytizer, the paramount push behind expanding it into uh, the various communities around the world. And I like the way you describe that from like the Roman perspective. Oftentimes the, 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 the generals, when they talked about the Christians, they didn't even like call them Christians. They just called them like the Messianic Jews. Like they were just like a crazy yes. branch of Judaism. Yes. Because I think that's exactly what it was. It wasn't thought of as this new thing called Christianity. It was just sort of these crazy Jews, this crazy offshoot of Jews that believed in another another world and that had tremendous faith and that, you know, really had uh, 
the type of belief and the type of passion that could threaten an empire. Like what, what was threatening about it? I mean, you, can they just be like, well, these are kind of wackadoos, just ignore them. Like what, what do you think the threat was? Well, the threat was that it was a so expansionist that its home was really not in this world. Its home was in the kingdom of heaven. And so anybody that you can see it in passionate movements today too, where someone, uh, where, where the, the group, the collective kind of breaks mentally and emotionally breaks out of the, the concerns of the material world and is concerned with another world, a world beyond this world. And so is willing to under, undergo sacrifices and give up their lives and et cetera, et cetera. And also at, at the time, I think early Christianity among the people who were following it was an absolute sensation in terms of the passion that it aroused. And I think that Rome felt, and I say this in the book, I put this in the mouths of one of the tribunes, that the emperor's sleep was not troubled by other armies, but but rather a new faith, something that people could believe in beyond this world. That was a real threat. And in fact, that's what did bring down the Roman Empire so that the Vatican is now in Rome, right? I mean, it became the seat of Christianity, the very heart of the empire. And the other interesting thing about the Christian movement, like they, they were using the empire to further their their aims, right? Like Paul, they were able to be able to reason right. Paul's able to like connect with all these different groups because like Rome, the empire had built all these roads and shipping lines and they were using that to spread their message. Yes. That was a kind of a delicious irony of the thing that the very modern inventions that Rome had brought see, you know, the roads that they built, the mail, this was what the apostle used to further his message and get it out there. So Rome was sort of, you know, complicit in its own demise in that sense. Well, let's talk about Telamon. So you mentioned this was a character from previous books. What other books did he make an appearance in? He was in Tides of War, which was set during the Peloponnesian War. Then he came back unchanged and unaged, not a hundred years later, as a mentor to Alexander in uh, my book, The Virtues of War. And then I even set him, gave him a cameo in a book called The Profession that's actually set in our contemporary future, about 20 years in the future. But that was a little tiny thing. But he was in, he was in two books where, you know, 70, 80 years apart, where he had not aged a day. And then in this new one, in A Man at Arms, it's another few hundred years later, and he hasn't aged a day either. And what's going on there? Like, what do you, I think that's interesting. You'd have a character who's the same guy, but it just, he shows up in different time periods. I mean, to me, you know, this, it bred, it's kind of interesting because this is, it's nothing I particularly planned. You know, I didn't say, oh, I'm going to have this character in one book and again and again. But once I sort of started doing that, it seemed to really make great sense to me. To me, Telamon is sort of the, the supreme archetype of the warrior, but he is also the universal soldier in the sense that he appears in century after century unchanged, just like war is a universal constant in the human race and warriors don't change either. So he is one of these, he's the universal soldier to me who appears over and over again. And of course, the next question is why? Did he commit some terrible crime in the past that he has to pay for by doing this? And I don't even know the answer to that. 
but I just I just see him as stuck in in this archetype and sort of condemned to live it over and over. And what's interesting about Telamon in this in A Man at Arms is that okay, he's a former legionnaire and in the Roman army, they're like a, a legionnaire. You had a career, like you, you serve for a certain amount of time, then you got some land, you basically were able to take it easy. But he doesn't do that once he, his service is up. He decides to become a mercenary. What, what do you think is going on there? Why didn't he fall? Is it just because he's that archetypical warrior? He has to keep fighting? I think that's, that's exactly it. That his, as he says in A Man at Arms, he was in the legions, but he was not of them. And that he never really, he never embraced, you know, the eagle or the idea of Roman citizenship or the three-part name that Romans always took or that, you know, people might volunteer for the legions in Spain, let's say, or in Gaul. And they would not be Romans. They would be natives of that country. And they would, in essence, take on a Roman identity. They would change their name, kind of like in the French Foreign Legion, and they would take a Roman name and they would achieve Roman citizenship. And they would, you know, essentially be faux Romans, you know, or artificial Romans. And in their mind, of course, they were full-fledged Romans. And then they would go through their service. And as you said, they'd get maybe some land or they would, you know, have uh, various bounties that they achieved over time and have some money. But Telamon is a guy who, from the previous two books of mine, is beyond all that. He doesn't care who he serves for. He doesn't care what the flag is. He is a his goddess. The only goddess he worships is Ares, the Greek goddess of strife. And he is one of these guys who is a rare bird that he said, as he says, I fight for the fight alone. I serve for the serving alone. I tramp for the tramping alone. So he was definitely not a part of the legions in any emotional way. He was, he was beyond that in his own mind. So when he got out, there was never a question that he would settle down and have a farm. He's continuing to serve the goddess strife and moving on in his own way as a solitary individual. To me, he's kind of like a samurai that you see in the Ronin movies where they were masterless samurai that were cut loose from the collective and were just on their own, kind of like a, a Western gunslinger in an American Western. Yeah, or he's like a private eye, you know, he's like a Humphrey Bogart yeah. type, you know, like he, he has his own code. It's not yeah. the code of the state but he's got his own code that he's going to follow no matter what. Exactly. Which is what makes him so interesting to me and what makes him, I think a very modern character. He's like a private eye. He's like a, a Clint Eastwood man with no name type of gunslinger. He's like uh, the Humphrey Bogart character in Casablanca, an individual who has cut himself free from any collective beliefs, any flag, any cause, any leader, and is trying to navigate his way just as an individual, you know, by his own code, which is constantly evolving as he has his various adventures. And as you said, it's primarily like he's just drawn to fighting. Like he calls it, his philosophy is dust and strife. And I'm, 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 as I was reading this, I mean, it's hard not to bring in some of the other stuff you've written about in your nonfiction about being an artist, being a writer, being a business person, entrepreneur. Do you see any connection there? Like what you've written about and say like the war of art to Telemann's dust and strife, anti-hero yes. philosophy? <laughs> yes, absolutely. I always, I feel like I have sort of two types of books that, that I write. One is a kind of a uh, inner war type of book, like the war of art. That's really about 
the mental and emotional world that an artist or an entrepreneur deals with. And the other are these novels that are usually set in the ancient world, and they're about the outer war, where the warfare becomes a metaphor, external warfare becomes a metaphor for the internal war. And one of the things that's really interesting to me about the character of Telamon is that he's fighting both. He is a physical warrior for whom violence is a way of life, but he's also a philosopher, and he's trying to fight his own internal wall. This, as strong a character as he is as a warrior, he feels frustrated in that. He's like up against a wall, like he's exhausted that archetype. And much like, you know, say the Humphrey Bogart character in Casablanca, or the Clint Eastwood character in various Westerns, or a lot of samurais. They, they can do their thing. They can win these fights. They can endure adversity. But they know in their hearts that something is missing, that they're kind of stuck. And this story, like, like Westerns or like samurai movies, is, is about bringing the warrior beyond that to the next level, which you know involves a step into love. And that's where the, uh, the, the Apostle Paul's letter comes into this whole story. And tying this back into like your work with artists and entrepreneurs, like do you see a lot of artists and entrepreneurs, like that's their philosophy? They take that sort of dust and strife philosophy when they first start out? I, I think absolutely. And I think, you know, that you almost have to, right? You're if you're an entrepreneur and you're and you're launching a new business or a startup or something, or if you're an artist and you're writing a book or a movie or you're a musician or whatever, you're alone. And the world is a hard, cruel world. And if you're going to break through that world, you kind of have to have an aggressive mindset, a warrior mindset. And it's also very much of an ego mindset. It's really a, you know, us against the world type of environment just or mindset just to kind of break through. But once you do break through, once you do have you have established yourself where somewhere, then the next question becomes: What am I going to do with this identity that I have, with this platform that I've achieved? Am I just? Is it just about my own ego and pushing forward for more, you know, money or whatever? Or is it actually about something? Do I really have some some gift that I want to give to the world, or some message that I'd like to bring? We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. And now back to the show. And one of the ways you flesh out the character of Telamon is he has an apprentice. Or and I'd say yes. like, I don't think he, Telamon is the kind of guy, like he's, he's, a lone, he's a lone gun. So of course he wouldn't want an apprentice. But so rather this kid basically decided, Telamon, you're going to be my mentor, whether you like it or not. Tell us about this boy and like, what can we learn about Telamon because of the boys like attract, like him wanting to be mentored by Telamon? That's a great question, Brett. And I, this was almost an instinctive choice as a writer. I I had the character of Telamon and something made me say to myself, he needs an apprentice. He needs somebody that idolizes him and also somebody that we can see the story through his, through his eyes. And uh, I was thinking, have you seen the movie Seven Samurai? Yes. You know, the, the, um, the lead samurai at the very start of the movie has, has a young samurai attach himself to him. Do you remember that character? Right, right. Who goes all the way through the, he, you know, he bows down to him. He says, please, sir, you know, make me your apprentice. I want to learn from you. And 
I thought that that was just a great way of getting into Telemann's character because the way he teaches the apprentice is he, he, he never says anything. He just allows him to watch or he says very few things. And of course, what was clear to me as a writer was that in the end, it was going to be the apprentice who winds up teaching the master and that things would, would turn by the end. So that was the reason for the character of David, the young boy who, who follows Telemann. And, and give some context, David, you know, he comes from, a, I guess, a, a really religious, like his religious Jewish family. So what, you know, going the warrior path was like, yeah, that's not what you're supposed to do, but he still wanted to do that. Yeah, he was definitely some, he came from like an impoverished family. He's illiterate, but very much felt the oppression of the Roman Empire on them and very much felt that the Jewish community, as it stood at that time, was not strong enough to, to resist this thing. And so he himself, just kind of seeking manhood, seeking masculinity, if you want to use that word, which I do, sought out the most masculine character that he could find and attached himself to him because he wanted to learn to stand up for himself and to stand up for the community. And, you know, Telemann, he could have just told this kid to take a hike or even killed him. It's like, you're just annoying me. But he doesn't. Why do you think that is? Have you figured that out? Or is it, was like uh, Telemann just opening himself up to, to change? Or what do you think? That's a great question, Brett. It's sort of like, have you ever read a book called Save the Cat? I have not. By Blake Snyder. It's a wonderful book. There's like three or four of these books. It's about screenwriting. It's about writing movies. And Blake Snyder is a screenwriter or was. He died tragically at a young age. But um, one of the things that the idea behind Save the Cat is that any hero in a story needs to do something early in the story that makes us in the audience think that he's a good guy or a good gal. And the Save the Cat is is um, Blake Snyder's way of doing that. The hero should save a cat or something like that. Do something nice. Because most heroes in stories, if you think about gunslingers or samurais or private eyes or any of these kind of classic hard-bitten heroes, most of them are really tough hombres. They're hard to like. And a lot of them, violence is their first uh, gesture in anything, their first option. So to let us, the viewer, into the story, you sort of need to have a little bit of a something that shows uh, this guy has a little bit of a soft spot anywhere. But also, more important than that, I mean, I knew with Telemann at the start of the story that he was going to seem to be the all-time hardcore badass guy. But by the end of the story, he was going to have switched and come all the way over to a position of love. So I wanted along the way for us to see that even beneath his crusty hard exterior, he does have compassion and he can feel feel for somebody and take on this young boy. I mean, to do that was really a, a real gesture of empathy and, and a real kind gesture. And I think that made a lot of sense that that would then come out later in the story as we got to know Telemann completely. I'm curious, in your, in your own life, have there been situations where you were David, the boy, looking for that, that mentor? Or when you were Telemann and you've had a young person like, show me the ways. Have you experienced that personally? Uh, that's another great question, Brett. I mean, I definitely have, have had both. And if I would say one was more predominant, it's that I've had mentors. 
and I've, I've had many mentors where I was in the position of, of being the apprentice and that have been absolutely invaluable to me, could not have done, you know, anything that I've done without them. So, yeah, I think that's a huge part of our evolution. I'm sure it's true for you, too, you know, that you find yourself taking people under your wing from time to time and also reaching out to mentors that can that can guide you and, and give you some feedback along the journey that we're all on. Well, did you have a mentor that stood out to you? Like that was like really kind of that Telmon, like really crusty and grouchy, but you learned a lot from him? I've, I've had many, but I'll tell you one. In my 20s, I drove trucks for a while and I had a mentor, a guy named Hugh Reeves, who was a dispatcher at this trucking company in North Carolina that I worked for. And he took me in when he had no real reason to do to do so. I was really like clearly kind of lost and, you know, in my own weird journey. And there was one moment that he that was really made a big, deep impression on me. I was on my own sort of um, hero's journey, my own odyssey. I was lost, whatever. And and I kept screwing up. You know, I would, you know, deliver loads late and I would you know, get into accidents and stuff like that. And at one point, Hugh called me into his office and he, you know, sat me down and he said, he said, son, I don't know what sort of journey you're on in your own mind here, but this is a business. We are in business here and you are a representative of this business. We are, our job is to, to deliver loads and deliver them on time and not to screw up. And you cannot afford to be going through whatever emotional stuff you are in your head. You got to get it together because this is a business designed to make money. And that was like, you know, one of those moments of, you know, a slap in the face, you know, thanks. I needed that type of thing. So he was a great mentor to me and, and I'm grateful to him to this day. Well, yeah, he taught you how to be professional. Got yeah, he certainly gave me that idea. Anyway, it took me a long, long time to actually <laughs> become a professional. All right, so Telemann, former legionnaire, he gets basically voluntold by the Roman army to hunt down a courier who's carrying a letter from the Apostle Paul. Because again, the Romans are freaking out that this this movement is going to spread and bring down the empire. He meets the courier, and instead of turning the courier in, he has some sort of conversion. And we're not going to talk about what that conversion looked like, because that's that's the book. That's that's the we don't want to we don't want to do that. But I mean, I'd like to use that his conversion, whatever that is, as a starting off point to discuss that what you're talking about that that switch from mercenary values, that philosophy of strife and dust, to a philosophy guided by love. Like, what is I mean for you? Like, what does that? What does a philosophy guided by love look like in an artist's life? or a business person's life, uh, just a man's life. And I'm guessing, does Telemann completely leave the, this philosophy of strife and dust behind and embrace this love philosophy? He doesn't really. I think he integrates it. And there's a character that is central to this that we haven't mentioned. And uh, it's a young girl who is a nine-year-old mute feral girl who is the daughter, or at least we think she's the daughter of this this suspected courier that's carrying the letter. We don't know where the letter is. It's all a mystery. And a bond begins to form between Telamon and this girl. And it's sort of a mysterious bond that they just seem to be simpatico with each other. And that in essence, she proves to be of all the warriors in this story. And there's a bunch of them. 
she is the sort of the the supreme warrior of in terms of of dedication and of ability to uh, rise to an occasion. And so what happens with him, without giving away too much of the story, Telemann, is that he finds his heart opening to this girl, sort of like it did to David, to the boy who he takes on as his apprentice. And uh, the story, as it goes along, this girl kind of proves herself over and over to him in one way or another. And he begins to not so much care for any message or any spiritual doctrine as he cares for her. And that's kind of what, where love kind of enters the picture, but he remains a warrior throughout the whole thing. And his warrior skills are set in the service of this, of this love. And, you know, when, the Apostle Paul talks about love in, in his letter to the Corinthians. He's not really talking about romantic love or the love that we feel for a brother or the love that we feel for a wife or for a family. He's talking about true Christian love at the highest level, you know, love for um, the entire human race and for anyone who is suffering, anyone who is vulnerable, and love for the kingdom of heaven. The highest form of love, agape, really, in Greek. All these elements kind of come together as the story progresses. The letter, the girl, the bad guys, etc. Well, let's tie it back into your previous like nonfiction writing. Have you seen this sort of theme play out in your nonfiction writing as well? Yes. I mean, I think that what, if we ask ourselves, let's say we want to be a writer, we want to be an entrepreneur, we want to be a, a songwriter, a filmmaker, or whatever, the first step is to kind of learn how to do that, to be a professional at that, to acquire those those skills. But the next step, sort of the second half of, of our adventure, is what are we going to use those skills for? What, and in essence, if we think about, this is maybe getting a little too deep, Brett, but what the hell? Let's do it. If you think about the hero's journey in the uh, Joseph Campbell sense, which is a kind of a self-initiation that an individual goes through, through whatever suffering they have, whatever journeys they undergo. It always ends kind of like Odysseus coming back home to Ithaca. It, return, it always ends with a return home, kind of like Dorothy comes back to Kansas or any hero sort of returns to where they started. But they return as a different person and they return, this is according to the legend, with, quote unquote, a gift for the people which comes from what they've learned on this journey, what their solitary suffering has brought them to. So the question then becomes, if you're an entrepreneur, if you're an artist or whatever, what is my gift? That's the question that we all have to ask ourselves. What, if, if you're a writer, you say, well, what kind of books was I put here to write? If you're a songwriter, you say, what kind of music was I put here to, to produce? And when, when you get to that, the question really is, it's really a gift for the world. It's a gift for others. Whatever your, whatever your, the song you're writing is meant maybe to bring somebody up from a depressed place, maybe to, to tell them that they're not alone in a, in a situation of broken heart or, or frustrated life, whatever. But it is a gift and it's a gift that's given out of love and, that's I, be, I believe that is the whole meaning of our existence on this planet, 
that we kind of start off as children, as infants, where it's all me, 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 give me my food, you know, whatever. And even as we become adults, it's still a kind of a me, me, me thing, right? I want to achieve my goals. I want to make money. I want to establish an identity. I want to have a family, bump it, bump it, bump. But at some point, the question becomes, what am I doing all this for? And the answer, if we're going to be, if we're going to evolve and not be stuck in some or case of arrested development, is that we're we're giving something from our heart to the rest of the world. And if you're if you're an artist, that's your art, that's your books, that's your music, whatever. If you're an entrepreneur, it's whatever business that you're putting forward. So I think that's how, if we are going to evolve, we evolve from fear to love or from ego to love. No, I, I like this because this ties in nicely with some other guests we've had on the podcast. Like David Brooks has that book, The Second Mountain, and then um, and that's and then there's like Richard Rohr is this Franciscan. Monk. Yeah, yeah, Richard Rohr. Yeah, David Brooks too. You're absolutely yeah. right. Those are definitely guys that I am tuned into, and I read all their stuff. Right. So this idea is like first you, you the first part of life is like you're, you're there to like construct a self, and it's very practical, hands on. So like what you're talking about, you have to learn your craft, learn how to be a good writer, be a professional. And then at a certain point, you have to figure out, well, what's this for? And I'm curious, like, what do you think happens if you reverse those? Like, what if you try to, like, get that more higher level idea first before getting the practical level? Like, what happens if you are Telamon who's guided by love before you are Telamon the mercenary man-at-arms? That's a great question. I'm not sure I really have a real answer. No, I, I've never even thought about it. Um what were you going to say, Brett? I don't know either. I, I, that's what I was thinking as I was as you were talking. I was like, "What would happen if you flipped the it, script?" It seems to me unnatural to do that. In that, I I don't know if that actually would work. I think sometimes someone at a young age might think that they are doing something purely out of love, but I'm not. So, I would be skeptical if I met that person. Not to say that it doesn't happen or it isn't true, but. Um, I, I really don't know what the answer yeah. to that is. I, it just doesn't seem like things work that way. Yeah. I mean, I'm just ripping off the cuff here. I mean, they probably would be ineffective, right? Because you wouldn't have the skills. Like you have this idea of what you want and like what, but like you don't have any skills to make it come to pass, to make it manifest itself. And so you just, be yeah, kind, or e- it, it's, you're, you be, you're sort of impotent in a way. Or even I would say beyond the idea of skill. I mean, I have a theory. One of my books, one of my nonfiction books, I'm sure you know about, it's called The Artist's Journey. And the, the theory of the, the thesis of that book is that we have, two, it's kind of like Richard Rohr, first half of life and second half of life, where that we have kind of two, two lives. The first is our hero's journey. And when that's done, we go to our artist's journey, which is just like what Richard Rohr says. Of first, you, you establish the vessel that is yourself. And in the second half, you ask yourself, well, what do I fill the vessel with? But going back, what I meant to say was, in that first half of life, in that hero's journey, it's not just about the acquisition of skills, I don't think. I think it's also about a a humbling, a deep humbling that happens to us. I think almost always the, uh, the hero's journey ends with or it hits a point of what they would call in Hollywood an all is lost moment, a moment where we really hit bottom and and then turn around from there. And it seems to me, if we going back to the Apostle Paul, it's the moment of his conversion on the road to Damascus, you know? But I, I so in other words, I think the first half of life is not just about acquisition of skills, 
but it's about being broken. It's about coming to a place where we say from our ego, I can't handle it. My ego is not enough. Living out of the rational mind, out of the ego is not enough. And we sort of, at that point, and this becomes kind of religious or at least spiritual, we sort of surrender. We give up. If we are, if the analogy would be to say an alcoholic, they would say, and that moment that I have no control over alcohol and I have to call on a higher power, I give up. I can't do this by, by myself. So that I think the key to that is that once we're humbled in that way, then we're truly capable of love. Then we have empathy, not just for ourselves, because we've been broken and we've seen how broken we can be, but it immediately applies to others. And we start to have compassion. Well, if I can fall apart like I've fallen apart, or if I've seen to my deepest self and I see how broken I am, then everybody else is on that same path. And my only real honorable way of dealing with others is with compassion and empathy and to try to help. And, and that's love. So I don't, don't mean to get too deep here, no, Brett, but I think that's what it's about. And that you see that play out with Telemann. Like he, he has yeah, a moment definitely. where he's broken. He has that moment. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then also, and what I liked about the way you just do with the book is you, you show how that figuring out that second half of life stuff typically happens. And again, don't want to give it away. You got to, you got to read, read it in the papers if you want to see how that happens. But it, it's not the way people typically think it happens. It's not intellectual. It's not rational. It's something else. No, it's definitely not. It's definitely happening on the soul level and not on the behavioral level or the psychological level for all of us when we come to that change. And if you think of a lot of stories have that same pattern, books or movies, where the hero hits a, a point of no, a dead end. You know, if I'm thinking of a movie, Cool Hand Luke, I don't know if you remember that with Paul Newman. Oh yeah, of course. Where he's on the chain gang, right? And, you know, they finally break him or he hits that moment where he ch- things turn around for him. So it's a common, I think, for all of us. And I'm curious, have you already thought about like what's, what happens to Telemann next? Did he escape this sort of uh, eternal recurrence of being a, a warrior? <laughs> Or, no, I haven't. In <laughs> fact, I know I've got to, and I'm kind of scared to death of it. I, I, I know I haven't taken it all the way yet. So uh, I'm waiting for the muse to uh, touch down and help me on that one. Well, Stephen, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? Just my my website, which is just my name, Stephen Pressfield, with a Stephen with a V. And that's got, you know, all of the various stuff about it. But the book is on sale at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, bookstores, indies, everywhere. All right. Well, Stephen Pressfield, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Hey, Brett, thank you very much. I'll do it again anytime on any subject. All right. Thank you. My guest today was Stephen Pressfield. He's the author of the book, A Man at Arms, available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find out more information about his work at his website, stephenpressfield.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash manatarms, where you can find links to resources where we delve deeper into this topic. (laughs) 
Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles written over the years. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to Stitcher Premium, sign up, use code MANLINESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you would think we can out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, it's Brett McKay. Remind you not only listen to the Podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Mm-hmm.